everybody, and welcome to still another, and I guess the new word is iconic, edition of Money Talks and Bullshit Walk. As I said, iconic, I guess, is the new N-word. Uh, with me, as always, is Joe Willard, the man who makes this thing tick like a bomb. As we all know, I'm a big picture guy, so getting past turning on the computer is my limit of tech-wise. Joe also has a unique talent of inviting guests to join us. Uh, today, I invited a guest, Tom Farrick, uh, and in a few moments, we'll get with Tom. But first, Joe, I'd, I'd like to remind everyone um, of our pots to our posters uh, of the words our attorney, Bombastic Bushkin, instructed us to emphasize before each podcast. Bombastic Bushkin wanted us to say, we are not historians, we are not journalists, although we've had current journalists and former journalists join us. And our guests, all of them, including our guest tonight, is that we deal in urban legends. And if the truth comes out, so be it. Uh, you can just think of us as a group of friends standing outside Philly International Airport, trying to figure out the mask mandates and talking trash about the city that loves you back. The land of the giants, as former Inquirer columnist wrote, and I believe that was uh, Steve Lopez. Tonight we have as, as a guest is Tom Farrick. Tom is a former journalist, uh, writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and he's covered both Harrisburg uh, state government and Philadelphia government and politics. Uh, Tom, can you, can you hear me? I can. Is that uh, accurate, what uh, the introduction? So far, so good. How did you get assigned to the Harrisburg, I guess, Bureau of the Inquirer? Uh, that's, you're going way back because uh, I joined well, the Inquirer in 76, but I was in Harrisburg working for United Press International. Which oh, okay. Now, blessed so, memory. The Inquirer was going from, uh, I'll call it the Philadelphia name, the Inquirer. The Inquirer was going from a three-person bureau to a two-person bureau. And one way to fill in that gap is to hire someone from the wire services who's used to, you know, like constantly writing stories. And so they hired me in 76 and I came down to the city in 80. And then I went to Boston for a couple of years and worked in the National Bureau there. And then I came, well, I came, actually I came down to the city to be the political writer. Uh, and I was the political writer for a couple of years, uh, went to Boston, came back, had a bunch of beats. I also was city hall bureau chief for a while okay. back in the, during the Green administration. Well, I, wasn't here for, I wasn't here for Barney Sanders, but I just missed him. <laughs> That's too bad. <laughs> yeah, pretty good guy. <laughs> well, Tom, let me, let me start off by asking you, and we kind of talked about this earlier, in the 80s, uh, and I guess going, I don't know, uh, there seemed to be more give and take uh, between the Republicans and the Democrats in Harrisburg. Um, and did that have to do, how, how did you view why that w was in place, that there, there was some talking to each other? Well, that was, that was really the tradition. I mean, that had gone on for a long time. And it partly was because of the fact that they, they had to get stuff done. That was, those are the days when they got stuff done. And, and that means the budget and other things. And we didn't have the conservative lawmakers, not the way they are today. In fact, if you think about it, if you go in the Wayback Machine, uh, in the 70s, when I was covering it for the wire services, and in the 80s, uh, the leadership of the Republicans mostly 
was from suburban Philly. And that means they were mostly moderate to liberal. Uh, Bob Butera, Matt Ryan, Tony Sirica. I can think of a bunch of guys who, who um, were moderate to liberal. And then what happened was, is that uh, the suburbs are ruined by Ed Rendell. So Rendell came, came into office, uh, I guess, in 92, he won in 91 yeah. as mayor. And, and immediately he faced an incredibly gaping hole in the city budget. And uh, I guess he, I guess he talked to to everybody, and then had to troop up to Harrisburg and and find a way to save the city from bankruptcy. Do you think that's a fair a fair uh, look at at the whole idea of the city's economic straits uh, in the early nineties? Well, cities don't go bankrupt, as you know, uh, but but it was in bad uh, fiscal shape. This is one of our favorite. Uh, government reporter words, fiscal, nobody else uses it. But, um, and it was mostly because of Wilson Good. You, you may recall that uh, Wilson's mayorality ended in 1985, effectively, when the, they did the incendiary device at MOVE. Right. And uh, his political, his whole political career and credibility was blown to pieces with the, no pun intended. Uh, and uh, I actually remember a friend of mine said, uh, a guy, no, it wasn't a friend, but a guy said they characterized Wilson's uh, testimony before the MOVE Commission as the reverse Nuremberg defense. Uh, I was only giving orders, uh, and therefore it wasn't his fault what happened. Uh, but after that happened, he could pretty much get nothing done. He had no political capital left, I guess, for one of a better word. Well, he didn't start off as a politician, so he didn't have much uh, to go back on. Uh, he didn't come from the political world. No, he didn't. But I, I, I don't know whether you can say he was not a politician. He actually right. was a very good politician. He was actually a good campaigner. And he went through difficult times. I covered his first campaign, the fall portion of that. And um, very disciplined, smart, good read of people, extremely serious. But anecdote, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Russ Cook, who was in the City Hall Bureau, and I, went to interview him after the election, but before he took office. And he was up in the, you know, I don't think it's here anymore, but there was a hotel in Center City, in Pence Center, that was a big, big place for Democrats because it was a union, a union shop. And he had his headquarters up there in what was a all white suite. Uh, and when we went in to discuss what he was gonna do, he had a whole bunch of easels up on the wall. Uh, around set up and they had different topics and we went through them and he was telling us how he was going to get a committee to work on transportation a committee on taxation a committee on this a committee on that and they were going to work and he had the timelines down and they were different colors and then that would end and they would have come to him come with the solutions to these problems and after about an hour of this when we left I said to Russ, I have a, I have a, um, I have a bad feeling that he thinks forming committees solves problems, uh, and that that's the way you do it, and uh, you don't obviously. And I think we found that out during his. He was, he was a, a pretty bad mayor, a, a good guy, but a pretty bad mayor. He didn't have those life skills that he needed to do that. So by the time he was done, because nothing was being done. The city was sort of in the civic equivalent 
of a clinical depression. Everybody felt bad about Philadelphia and they had reason to, not every, you know, know what I mean? All generalities are false, including this one. But, but <laughs> they, they felt bad about Philly and they had reason to because our, we were a city that was at the tail end of decline that began in the 60s, but really accelerated in the 70s under Rizzo in terms of population, in terms of the shift of jobs. I mean, it's been a long time, but it, it, you know, we were called workshop of the world for a reason. We had a vast spread of in, industries. In yeah, we of, talked about that because it, uh, we, and, and my, I, I theorized that one of the problems with the, that's been endemic with the schools is that going back for those kinds of years, there were shops on every corner, so to speak, in every neighborhood. And basically the kids didn't really need much more than a high school education to go and do manufacturing, maybe a little bit more, but that sort of has become endemic or has had been, and, and those jobs are gone. We're, we're well, there's no manufacturing jobs. I mean, they yes. first moved to the South and then they moved uh, overseas and now they're in China. So, so we lost all that work and, and our tax base eroded. And there was a high level of poverty then, in the same way there is now. And council couldn't be convinced to realize that. And we ended up, you know, there was no physical discipline. There was no like people saying like, well, we can't afford this. And they, um, so we went down the chutes. And we, we didn't have the money to pay our bills. It was a very, it, it wasn't a fun time to be here. <laughs> Uh, in fact, the, the 70s and 80s weren't much fun at all now. I mean, then, uh, and the Rendell thing was a big change because of that. But they had to, they had to do something about it or else they would miss payments. They would, the bond rating would have tanked. They wouldn't have been able to borrow money. They wouldn't have been able to afford the government that they had. And that's when the state stepped in. And I think you could it wasn't whoever the governor was then, but it was the legislative leadership that got together and basically created this fund, the Pennsylvania Intergovernmental, uh, whatchamacallit, authority. And, and basically what it did was float a bond to bail right. the city out and then had them pay it back over a 20-year period with a percent on the sales tax, which they're almost done paying for, as a matter of fact. And... Um, that was a big relief for the city financially. And I don't think it took too much to get it through. I think if you think about it, Purcell was, if not the majority leader, then rising in, you had people in the Senate who were buddy, Cianfrani right. was gone, but Vince Fumo was in there. Well, let's and, stop for one second. And, and yeah. can you, because sorry, I think that's all right. Uh, I think we, we, you and I, and most of us know that Fumo was, was carried the water for the city, but you mentioned seeing Franny. So can you sort of paint a picture how it transitioned from seeing Franny to Fumo? Very quickly, because seeing Franny was indicted and lost his seat uh, when he was convicted. And Vince uh, got elected to replace him and moved very quickly because he was very politically astute into the position of chair of the Appropriations Committee and was a very smart guy and had a great staff. And they, and John Street, O'Donnell, uh, came up with this pica idea. And it flew. People 
people weren't against that in Harrisburg. They didn't have a lot of Republican opposition. There was no one in Harrisburg who was willing to plug, pull the plug on Philly. They're willing to talk about it. They're willing to enjoy it, but they weren't willing to pull the plug on it. But there were strings that were attached to, to Pika, uh, that the state ended up with control of some things. Like the school board. Yes. Yeah, the state, the state basically, I mean, the Pika board had and has oversight over the city's budget making process. And they analyze the budget as passed by council and approved by the mayor. And if they feel that it'll knock things off in terms of the budget, the deficit or whatever, they can turn that budget down and send them back to the drawing board. That has never happened because the people who are in the city were smart enough to realize we should do this deals in the beginning and right. make sure the pike doesn't do this. No one was gonna defy them and say, you know, we dare you to turn, turn, turn it on because they didn't care. They would do it. They weren't politicians. They weren't elected. They were appointed. The Pica board. Yeah. And the Pica board was appointed by the governor. They weren't elected and they were meant to be oversight board. And they had, you know, good people on it who knew finances and knew government finances. So they were straight shooters. So once that that financial peril began to abate itself, politically, what uh, what was happening uh, in in Philadelphia? I mean, Rendell was such an oversized figure, uh, and you kind of briefly mentioned it um, that the the suburbs viewed him. Uh, I think you said as their mayor, the the counties. Right. So, uh, but there were people that uh, that. Uh, were also sort of developing or coming in to the political scene that over the period of years have become main players. You got uh, Kenny, uh, Brady, and Nutter all sort of came on the scene in, in 91. Brady went from sergeant at arms of council, uh, and I guess awarded a 34th ward to the uh, chairman of the Democratic Party. And uh, Kenny and Nutter were both elected in '91. So, Tom, we were we were talking about the uh, outside outsized personality that Rendell uh, was just all over the city and, and dominating the city. But in in '91, Brady comes uh, in from being the sergeant of arms. Talk about patronage to uh, and and a ward leader of the 34th ward and becomes the chairman of the Democratic Party. And both Kenny and Nutter are elected uh, for the first time as council people. And, and I guess Street has become the president of city council. So what did you view? Uh, did you view anything these three people would sort of assert themselves over, over the decade and, and become players and two mayors and Brady become a congressman? And uh, did you see that coming? I saw it all. Uh, and I predict, no, I'm only kidding. I didn't see it. I, I had no idea. He certainly wouldn't predict that John Street, who was sort of a rebel with a cause in yeah. council, would become first the first the council president and then the mayor of Philadelphia, the guy that famously was in the wrestling match with Franny Rafferty on the council yeah. floor. That Brady and, broke up as a sergeant. Yeah, Brady had to break up because that was his job. I remember Bob sitting outside council chambers in his blue jacket. And he was a, he was a union guy. I think it was with the Carpenters. Yeah. Give me up, I'm wrong about that. No, I think that's right. 
Yeah, and he was leader of the 34th Ward. Let me just say that I don't think Bob Brady had much impact on what happened in Philadelphia during that period because the Democratic organization didn't have much impact. The Democratic organization, if you want to call it that, didn't support Rendell, didn't like Rendell, felt that he wouldn't deal with them, felt, felt that he felt they were irrelevant, and he did. <laughs> and uh, so as a consequence, the traditional political machine, for want of a better word, was never pro-Rendell. The people loved him. And Rendell, because of the Philadelphia media, I think, only because of its reach, ended up becoming the de facto mayor of southeastern Pennsylvania. And when he ran for governor, uh, first time, and his primary opponent was Bob Casey Jr. No, nobody outside of the Philadelphia area thought Ed Randell would win. Why? Because he was the mayor of Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Yeah, uh, Philadelphia appears on the ballot in the primary. But, but he, he did, he, he lost 57 counties in Pennsylvania to Casey, but he won 10. And that was Philadelphia, the four suburban counties, Lehigh, Lancaster, Berks, Northampton, and Center County, which doesn't count because that's State College where Penn State is. And he won it because, you know, let's be honest, that in Philadelphia and the four suburban counties, that's where 42% of the state's Democrats live. So if you win those counties, you pretty much have won. Now, the political equation when I started in Harrisburg was Dem Republicans would lose Philadelphia and then they would win or break even in the suburbs and offset the city. Then they could win in the rest of the state, which actually worked for a long time. But Rendell, Bob Casey Sr. changed that when he first came in and he got Democratic votes. And then Rendell changed it so that people actually were changing their registration so that they could vote in the primary for Ed Rendell. He was very popular and popular across the region, uh, like no one ever has been. Yeah, I was just kind of sense prior to, to this, we kind of talked about that, the fact that Randell, with that Philadelphia County uh, under his name, uh, is the only Pennsylvania governor uh, uh, that I can remember in the last 50 years from Philadelphia, maybe going even back further, because the only other person I could think about was Milton Chap, but he was from Montgomery County, unless I'm wrong. And he spent $9 million when money was real. He was a dominating force, but he needed help, especially in Harrisburg. And we kind of talked about FUMO. And I'd just be interested to hear how FUMO not only carried the ball in, in Harrisburg as the head of the appropriations or minority, how it, that, that translated into his political power or being in Philadelphia. How, how did that sort of come about? Or was it always there when he became the state senator? No, he acquired power. He was very good at it. Uh, he was in politics for a long time. He used to be Pete Camille. Pete Camille was the city Democratic chairman. Pete Camille's assistant uh, and handled all the patronage requests. Uh, processed them, I guess, for one of a better word. And he he was head of the, boy, I'm going to, you're going to fall asleep. He oh, was no. head of oh, the... No. Uh, he was head of the um, Bureau of Professional and Occupational Affairs. He was a chap appointee and uh, a young and ambitious man. And he lost that job because he basically decided to do political spying 
on potential SHAP opponents, and that would be Bob Casey Sr. <coughs> and he had his office lined with aluminum foil because he thought people were going to try to reach in and tape them, you know, try to so right. using that for interference. And my friend, my colleague, Bill Eckenbarger, an excellent reporter, found out about this. And I know called up the governor's office at four o'clock in the afternoon and said, you know, did you know that Vince Fuma was spying on Bob Casey on state time and, you know, basically exposed, was going to expose him for what he was doing. And Dick Duran, who was Shap's number two guy, called him up. Uh, this is the old days when you, when you had like a late deadline. Called him up like two hours later and said, well, Vince is no longer the head of the Bureau of Professional Occupational Affairs. <laughs> he has resigned. He has been resigned, for want of a better word. So Bill got to write a story about how he was fired, not about him doing this stuff. It's a funny, it's sort of odd. It's like typical Harrisburg. But when he got back in, well, he got indicted first. But after that, and after that, he, that trial was over, that was a federal trial, he got back in and Vince's dream, in my opinion, in my opinion, always was to be the mayor of Philadelphia. It was a job that he really wanted. And I think at some point he realized he wouldn't get it. He was popular within his district, but not citywide. He had a reputation of being a deal maker, of being too smart for his own good. And it just wasn't gonna happen. Uh, John Doherty is another example. Remember when John ran for the state Senate? Yes. Uh, John, of course, John never heard a bad word from anybody who talked to him. And he was under the impression that he was gonna blow away the competition and win that seat. He did not, he didn't even win the primary because he was hated north of Tasker. Uh, he was popular in, in, South Philly. in South Philly, in two street, but wasn't even popular in the 39th Ward. And uh, he lost, Vince never ran, but I think he knew that he couldn't be mayor and he figured somewhere subconsciously, if I can't be the mayor, I will be the most powerful legislator I can be to represent Philly, to do Philly. He became the kingmaker, so to speak. Well, he wasn't, he was too mercurial to be a kingmaker. He had, he had uh, supporters, you know, Frank DeChico, Jim Kenny at that time, and others in South Philly who followed him because A, he delivered, he had his hands on a lot of money and a lot of levers, and two, he was vengeful, you know, he right. would come after you. Well, Kenny, <laughs> I believe when Kenny first ran, uh, I guess, for council, he had been on Fumo's staff. Yeah. And I guess at, I guess at some point, Fumo uh, was a guiding light for him uh, in the political world. Yeah. So, but uh, we're now we're talking about the chief of staffs and who, who, you know, who was it behind the scenes and pushing the buttons and telling people to say no or you can't do this. And we're talking about Rendell and I, I, you know, you can't talk about Rendell without talking about David L. Cohen, who I think Rendell probably should bend down and kiss his shoes every day. And you can't talk about Rendell without talking about John Street, because Rendell knew that he had to work with John Street in order to be a successful mayor, because otherwise he would not be able to control council. And he, he 
you know, if you recall, he set up this system where he and David Cohen and Street would meet first thing in the morning, seven o'clock, have coffee or whatever Street drinks. Uh, I don't think he drinks coffee. Uh, and, uh, you know, talk about what was going on. So they'd all be fully informed of what Randall wanted to do. And Street was on board with all that. Uh, now, sometimes he couldn't be publicly on board about that. But that was his move from being a, may I use the word, black politician to being a city politician and interested in city issues. Once he and Rendell, and I guess Cohen was sort of a conduit uh, or a go-between, yeah. came to that, did Rendell, in, uh, in your experience, then begin to minor, mentor or Cohen begin to mentor Street uh, or groom him to become the candidate for mayor? Or do you think that was all sort of uh, organic on Street's point? No, I don't think they, I don't think they uh, groomed him. Uh, that would be insulting to Street to think that because he's just too smart. But he obviously looked around. You know, it's one of those, you know, political campaign. You look around and say, you look in the mirror and say, well, I, why not me? I could do this. Uh, and I think John got that idea during the Rendell years and ran, ran a campaign that was, it ran a good campaign, but he wasn't a likable person, I guess that's the best way. A very it. prickly person, I guess. <laughs> I don't know him, but I, that's what- uh... he, can he can be. And he thought, <clears throat> you may recall, and you probably don't, but there's no reason you should, that he was running one of his one of his opponents was Marty Weinberg. I remember Marty, who was, who was nice nice guy by the way, who was who was Rizzo's party chairman. And Marty was anathema to white liberals and other people because he was identified as Rizzo's guy. And when it looked like, I forget the other people were in that race, but when it became a two person race, became between Marty, Marty and someone else. Voters gravitated and voted for Street, not because they were wild about Street, but because they despised Marty. And unfortunately, I think John thought that their votes were an affirmation that people liked him. And then of course, uh, Sam Katz came along. This is like Romanian politics and I apologize for that. No, that's all right. And then he discovered, you know, uh, he discovered that he had an opponent who was real and who very came very close to beating him. Like he lost by what, 8,000 votes or something like that. Right. So, so uh, you know, John was, he was never liked, but he was, he wasn't likable. He could have, I think his wife liked him. But, but, uh, but he, he was very smart. I've heard people talk, people who I respect say that he was the smartest guy they ever met in politics, that he could sit down, view a situation, find out where the notes were gonna flow through the French horn and, this, and come to a conclusion about where it would end up. And he was right. Anything to influence that. that that's that's interesting about. because we had, we had Phil Goldsmith on yeah. and Phil had been his communications director, his chief of staff. Uh, yeah. He was appointed to the head of, and, 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 and Phil uh, really said it almost to the word uh, what you're saying to us. So I think that Street uh, sort of has uh, an unappreciated, I guess, uh, place in the city history because uh, he's got a prickly personality, although I, I learned that he, he's Pentecostal and he does not curse. He doesn't drink. Uh, these were all things that were sort of, maybe they were out there, but I 
it, I just never really. I don't think he's Pentecostal. I think he's Seventh Day Adventist. Okay, but but uh, these were things that uh, either I didn't know or they just weren't there. But the street That's because you didn't like John Street. Well, I, you know, I don't know that I didn't like him. I think I had some questions about him. What came across, of course, in, in, in the media was that he could be tough and he could be nasty or he could be prickly. Um, but he stuck to that. He didn't really play up to anybody. And uh, I, you probably knew it more than us uh, in the sense yeah. that you were in the media and you covered him. I don't I don't know that he would be viewed uh, by by. Uh, the media as someone that would be uh, someone that, you, you know, he could come hot, hair fella and uh, well, well, well spoken. He was not a hair fella well met, I'll, I'll say that much, but I had a lot of fun with him. I used to do a thing called, when I was a columnist, Streets Diary, where I became <laughs> his id, basically. And he, you know, he left, let forward for all this resentment that he had, stuff like that. I remember early on when he was mayor, he invited me to lunch. And we went to the London. I still remember that. That's and over he, in uh, Fairmount. It was, and it closed, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> but he, it was, you know, it was, it was fine. And a lot of people like to meet with me because they usually heard from people. He's a nice guy. Why don't you just meet with him, you know? And I am a nice guy, except when I'm a journalist. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sort of a prick when it comes to that stuff. But... Uh, he was telling me how much he doesn't pay attention to the press, how much none of it bothers him, how much this, how much that. And then he pulls out of his jacket this laminated, I forget, but whatever it was, a reproduction of an Enquirer editorial. Now, I'll be honest, I forgot what it was about. But, and he said, look at this. Why, I'm not excited. He said, look at this. This is an example of what they did. And, you know, I, they can't be blah, blah, blah. And that's why people, and I'm thinking, why did you save that? I mean, who cares? I mean, it's one editorial. But he obviously took that stuff very personally, but just had the ability to sort of put a mask on. And he had to put a mask on. This is a, this is a, a black man, a, a man of mixed racial parentage who grew up on a farm. In Chester. Who got, who got into uh, a temple by the skin of his teeth. Uh, who was fired from his first lawyering job and was considered a rabble rouser. He, he um, you know, he was disliked uh, for the, the stands he took and what he did. And of course, he had the great misfortune to have Milton as his brother. Um, and, uh, you know, Milton was- I sort liked of Milton's hot dogs. <laughs> yeah, and I liked Milton too. I mean, he was like the court jester of Philadelphia politics and outrageous. And John would always defend him. He was his lawyer. He's the guy that went to went whenever he got arrested or something. Milton was personally corrupt and sort of felt that people owed him money. And John tolerated that corruption, I'm afraid to say. Got him a job down at uh, the airport, if you recall. Whereas I described it, his job was to tell the people who told the people how to run the luggage, how to run the luggage sorting. It was a sinecure. I mean, it just, it, but it was his brother. And, you know, what can you do? If you can't help your own, who can you help? But every time he helped, uh, he helped him. Milton found a way to kick him in the knees. I'm sorry. We keep, I apologize to you for drifting so much. Get me back on point, for God's sakes. All right. I'll get you back on point. So <laughs> we we were talking about Rendell having uh, having Cohen as his, uh, as, as his alter ego. Mm -hmm. Did Street have somebody like that? Did Nutter have somebody like that? Did 
uh, you know, did Kenny, does Kenny have someone like that? Uh, a, a David L. Cohen type, I'm not saying anybody's going to walk in his shoes, but is there somebody out there for each of those men who could sit in a room with them and tell them no? My measure of a successful politician is that they have that kind of person. Uh, Rizzo had Al Gadios, and a lot of people don't remember this, but Al was a former bullet reporter and he was tough as nails. And he could sit down and tell Rizzo, don't do that. Don't ever do that again. And Rizzo would listen to him. Al thought he was held in high esteem and ran for mayor based upon that. I remember that, yeah. And got shellacked because he, nobody liked him. Uh, and then um, <coughs> Bill Green had Dick Duran, who was a smooth Irish guy and, and also had worked in the state and new politics knew new politics well. Everybody I know who's, and Rendell had Cohen. Uh, Street had George Burrell, but Street also had, uh, I think a coterie of people who decided to ride that train to wealth. They're, you know, he was in the position of power and they would use that to, to, get, uh, to get what they want. Ron White was the, the best example right. of that. Unfortunately, died. It was a joke that, that he, were, he had control of the concessions at the airport and there was a joke that people called it Ron White International. Well, yeah, I mean, he was, he apparently had a lot of power to hire. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he was sort of streets guy, was seen as streets guy. And of course, that led to nothing but grief because the feds ended up taking street. I mean, that was, the feds were investigating right. the mayor and it broke right before the general election for his second term. So, uh, but he, there were people like that around who I thought were just interested in getting ahead and doing well because he was the mayor and he tolerated it. And he tolerated also because he wanted some of his programs uh, were, which were almost, I would say, maybe I'm wrong with this characterization because he was, he, was very much about improving neighborhoods, uh, neighborhood and transition. And Rendell's uh, main focus, at least the way it's viewed, was he's bringing back the city. People are going to want to come from the suburbs to go in town for dinner and go to a show. And that was not street uh, mantra at all. No, uh, Rendell was center city oriented. Right. And street, when he ran, you know, there's a lot of complaints that Rendell was ignoring the community you know, the people in the neighborhoods. And that wasn't just black neighborhoods, that was neighborhoods. And in fact, he was. <laughs> I mean, it, I mean, he, 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 it's not like he didn't care. He had people like Mike DeBaradinas over at Recreation and some other people who, John Cromer, who were very smart, good people about neighborhood policy. But the perception was he didn't care. And uh, he did care more about his, his and it wasn't, it wasn't emotion. It was his realization that if we don't get the jobs back in Center City, if we don't revitalize this place, we're going to die eventually. Because if Philadelphia is an automobile, Center City is its engine. And unless this engine is working, you can't do well. Well, John saw that, realized that people wanted something else. And you may recall that when he first became mayor, why are we talking about John so much, by the way? Um, he promised to tow cars and he sent the cops out and everybody to tow abandoned cars, which they did, which apparently had been piling up in the neighborhoods. 
And he also started uh, NTI. I, I never quite figured out what that was. I think it was a license just to spend money. It was a pot of money uh, that they could use and for some neighborhood groups and other purposes, neighborhood transformation initiative. When it was initially, when it was initially thought of, it was thought of that we're gonna transform neighborhoods by clearing out, this is a big problem at the time and still is to a certain degree, cleaning out the, the dead housing stock. Philadelphia's problem has been, as someone at planning commission told me, is that we have 16,000, we have 6,000 acres of land divided into uh, 16 foot fronts, you know, row house fronts. Right. We didn't have the room. And John, I think, with NTI was going to clear some of that land and make it available for development. And that, that wasn't, was, that wasn't a Rendell idea. That was, no, 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 that, no, but that, that didn't was happen. the contrast. It was, it was politically too difficult. Everybody, he, for him, it was politically too difficult because the, the, the African-Americans in Philadelphia didn't elect an African-American so he could come along and tear down their empty row house. They, they're more interested in services. Uh, so he never, he never took that next step. And in my opinion, NTI sort of lost its focus. Now, if you look at it, now you're talking 20 years later, you know, a lot of those places have been cleared and are remarkably different than they were then. And yeah, it's most yeah. because of various prop, you know, things we've done, like look at the Richard Allen home or don't because they don't exist anymore. Right. Uh, there was a lot of enlightened leadership in housing uh, that changed, uh, changed the, the fabric and nature of the city. And that was something that happened. Not John didn't do that, but that happened over time and allowed for residential development where people could and would live. Sorry. Well, it, in, in the 90s, uh, and obviously before, and we haven't really talked about it, but the, the Northeast... I think it's the only thing we haven't talked about. Right. The, but the Northeast <laughs> has changed radically uh, in terms of the demographics than what it was in the 80s and, and, and the 90s. Uh, and those were, there was a Republican bloc that, that, of voters in the far Northeast. And uh, it was one side of the boulevard was was uh, Catholic, ethnic uh, from European, and then the other was was the Jewish side. And, and uh, what, did that become a political battleground during during the '90s, or was was it beginning to dissipate the way the one side is is uh, is uh, Catholic and the other side is Jewish, and we'll just use that as generalities. The Northeast dynamic was a was a little bit more complicated than that. You, you know, you're old. If there was a phrase that someone once told me, they said the Northeast is our Rhodesia, <laughs> and of course that was that's a long time ago. There is no more Rhodesia, but it was our white enclave, and uh, black people were not allowed there. I mean, if you think of the traffic nightmare that is Roosevelt Boulevard. It's because they never went through with plans to build a subway up the middle of Roosevelt Boulevard, extend the subway, because the residents up there were afraid that blacks would come up and ride on the subway and then move into the homes and stuff like that. What has happened to the Northeast was the Northeast ended up being what they call a NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community. It was developed after World War II, 
this is uh, this is a generality, but everybody moved in between 52 and 54 as young couples. And they lived there and they raised their kids there. And by the time the 80s and 90s came along, they were 84, 85. Uh, and so you could look at it from a, a, ge a geographer standpoint, and I know a geographer who did, and say, these houses are gonna turn over. These, these people aren't gonna stay here. They're gonna die, they're gonna move, they're gonna go to California. We're going to have a, an implosion of the population of the Northeast. Uh, it was pretty pessimistic at the time. What they didn't, didn't foresee was the arrival of new immigrant groups the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians, the Russians, the Dominican, I'm trying to think, the East Indians. The Asians as well. There was an Asians Asian. and Eastern Europeans who came and started to fill in some of those houses, you know, buy those houses because they were, they were cheap and they established themselves there. And so white Northeast Philly is, I wouldn't say it's gone, but it certainly has shrunk in its size. And so as a result of that, uh, there was sort of a, I get a, a mathematical look at things in the 80s and 90s politically, I need to carry X ward and Y ward. Um, and that could be predicted as to how it was going to be done and what ward leader was going to be behind them. And that's, that was the 90s. Now it's, uh, it's sort of completely changed. Well, it's changed and then changed again, because the story of my youth, and I'm still very youthful looking at <laughs> the story of my youth was the rise of the black voter. And that began back in the 70s with the uh, Hardy Williams and folks like that, who the black politicians in Philadelphia at a certain point in the 70s, they held various positions, senators, council people. But if you look at them, they had one thing in common. They were all born in the South. And they came as young men or as children to Philadelphia, to the North. And they had a minority view, a minority point of view. They were mostly interested in getting their piece of the pie, their piece, their slice, their share. And for instance, when Rizzo won, probably not come up with a man who was more hated by the black community, but who was the first group of ward leaders to make a deal with him when he was mayor? Black ward leaders, because they needed access to the jobs. They wanted access to the power. There was a younger generation of Black leaders, and they became leaders indeed, who were younger, who were urban born, and looked at the process and said, wait a minute, why should we be satisfied just with a slice of the pie? We could control the pie. And those are people like Bill Gray, for instance, and and Hardy Williams and others who worked over a long period of time to activate black voters who had notoriously bad turnout, like the Latinos do today, and then got the, got the black turnout to rise. And of course it reached its peak when Wilson Good was elected in 83. And we had the, the arrival of black Philadelphians as a political force. And that has remained, as a matter of fact, you could even say it's somewhat dissipated. And you look at different things. Jim Kenney won black wards, not all of them, but a lot of them, Donald Trump did well to get a slice of black vote. I mean, under normal circumstances, a, a, a Republican would get 
three or four percent of the black vote, a Republican national candidate. Trump did slightly better. It's not not enough to say one, but slightly better. So um, the used to, I think the feeling was for a while, you could get up and say, I'm the black candidate, and you could assume a certain number of votes. I think that was Hardy Wynn's mistake. He didn't see that things had changed. In the 90s, that was that was there. What happened since the 90s that sort of changed that arithmetic? Well, the arithmetic's still there. Uh, the, the Democratic Party is majority Black Party. When you think of Philadelphia, think of Germany. I mean, what is now Germany in the 18th or 19th century. Remember those maps where you used to see all these principalities and, you know, Philadelphia is like. There's like Bill Gray controls the section. The Williams family, Vince controls stuff. I mean, they were principalities, basically. Marsh Tartaglione. And as a matter of fact, they had dynasties. <laughs> you know, yes. where the mother would go and the, and the the mother would go and the son would take over. And, you know. The Blackwells are a pretty good example of that. The Blackwells were a good example. And, and, the, and the Williams family is. The Tartagliones are. Uh, Vince didn't have kids who wanted to get involved in politics. But so they're all principalities. And since Rendell, there's really been no king in that sense. No one who controls all that. And Jim Kenny certainly doesn't. So that means that the Dukes and the Princes sort of assert themselves. So it's just the way it is. Well, to pick up on that point, began to talk about how the democratic infrastructure in Philadelphia, when Rendell became mayor, sort of dissipated. And, and I guess we turned into real principalities. Um, where is the organized Democratic Party in Philadelphia now? Is it, is it there? Is, is there a quote unquote machine there? I would say that the death of the Democratic organization is the longest running obituary in Philadelphia history. The Democratic organization's power is in inverse ratio to the importance of the race. If it's for president, no power. If it's for a judge and nobody knows who the hell they are, it has some power, which it puts up for sale, basically, uh, because nobody knows who the judges are. And the ward leaders have gotten to the stage where they're taking $10,000 as consultants to judicial candidates. People love judicial races. I remember hearing a story from uh, Steve Wojak, who you may recall, he's deceased sure. now, but he was a state legislator and he was leader of the 66th Ward. Uh, that was during his polyester period, as I say. Uh, but um, he told the story that when uh, Fitzpatrick, Emmett Fitzpatrick was running for re-election, he was working the polls. And along comes this senior woman who comes up and grabs him by the hand and says, oh, Steve, thank you. You helped my son. He was in trouble. And you got him out of trouble. I'll always be grateful. And Steve said, thank you, Helen. Just, I got something to ask you. Could you vote for Emmett Fitzpatrick? She said, that thief? Never. <laughs> he, couldn't thus, even get one, he couldn't even get one vote for the guy. Thus uh, became Edward J. Rundell. Yeah. And uh, so the Democratic organization, it's an oxymoron, really. And it's because there's a good reason. Because the, the organization dat dates back to the days when politics was retail and when politics was personal. And your committee people were part of a hierarchy, i.e. the bottom, 
where things could get done. If you wanted a stop sign, you would go to your committee person. If you wanted a license to move through, you'd go to your committee person. Why? Because they were either city employees or they had contacts within the departments and their bosses tended to be ward leaders. That They were their sponsors. So you had this well-defined hierarchy. Well, that sort of just all fell apart. <clears throat> now, if you want to get a red light or a stop sign in your neighborhood, you go to a civic ordinance and you don't go to, a, to a, rarely, there may be some places where you still go to a committee person, but the median age of a committee person is like 76. Now I consider that youthful, but, um, the, but they, just be can't, both. <laughs> yeah, they just can't get people to, yeah. I mean, you know, when half the committee people are older than the Pope, you know your organization's in trouble. It's a shame in a way, but it's just the reality of the times, those 19th century apparatus no longer needed. I mean, guys are now looking to get money, uh, you know, to get, to get money for TV, for media. That's the big deal, media. And so there's no retail politics. Well, there is some retail politics left. I mean, I, I always, I mean, I mentioned judgeships because I once wrote that if you're going to run for judge, you need $50,000. Now, you know that the Democratic Party charges 35 if they right. endorse it, and that's ostensibly to offset the cost of printing. So you, but you, that's what we're most, but you need 50,000 and then you have to, go out and spend 300 on posters and 650 on a stapler. And those are your expenses uh, because you're gonna go out and try to get board support by giving them donations, money, and most recently an actual quote contract for them to be consultants. And that's still going on, ask Ozzie Myers. Oh yeah. You know, I mean, that's still going on and, and Ozzie just had the, you know, I couldn't help it. You know, it's like, ooh, it's just the in them to, you know, rack up some votes for someone. For whom? For a judge. You know, um, who won? What, the, what was Biden's margin in the city? I think it was like 300,000 votes. Oh, could you yeah. Buy, could you buy yeah. 300,000 votes? Don't you oh, think yeah. word would get out? <laughs> you know, you try to keep it a, a secret. It'd be very costly, even if it was $2 a vote. Uh, and that uh, just doesn't happen anymore. You don't have it. And committee people are not influencers. I mean, for years, and I think you know, because you're old enough to remember, bars were closed on election day. Yes. You couldn't go on election day. And the story is that they were closed because ward people and committee people would use, the story was they'd line up shot glasses upside down on the top of the bar. Now we're talking 19th century, early 20th. And then you would go in and they would tell you who to vote for, give you the ballot, and then you'd go vote and you'd have the ballot marked that you voted and you came back and they'd give you a shot. They, they would give you a shot. So so they were, they were buying votes through favors, I guess you could say. But there was a measure of control that you simply can't have anymore. Like it was under the elder Bill Green. That by that, I mean, the old man. The old man. Yeah. So I mean, it just it doesn't of, exist. Yeah, that all of that has sort of fallen by the wayside. 
And the principalities that we talked about have sort of, I would say, have also fallen apart in the sense that now people are associated with a moderate wing or the liberal wing or the conservative wing, and they have their own little parties that if they if their interests intersect, that's great, but they have real, really no interest. Uh, many of these groups don't have any interest in intersecting at all. People with power. If you're, if you're a combination ward leader and elected official, you maintain power. If you are in the state house or council, people don't understand this from the outside. If you're in the state legislature and you have an opportunity to go to city council, you will go to city council because that's where the power is. That doesn't happen in a lot of other states. For the other states, the state legislature is the apogee of power. Well, I think that there's a great example of that recently where Mike Driscoll took the seat of Bobby Heenan. Yeah. And he was in, he was in the legislature. They'll, they'll leave it in a minute. You know, I mean, if, it, if the vacancy comes up, first of all, you don't have the commute, but the benefits aren't as good. But, um, well, you are paid double. You paid more, almost double. That's right. You do get, get a pretty high salary. You know, it's just, it's just where the power is. But look at the power that council people have over development, for instance, expansion over getting streets fixed and getting those street lights we were talking about, those street lights or stop signs or red lights. I mean, they, they have the power in their domain if they're district council people to get some of that stuff done because the mayor needs them and he needs them because he has to have someone vote for his budget and his legislative program. Now, fortunately, our mayor, our current mayor, doesn't see it that way. I don't know why not. He doesn't like to make deals and he's essentially powerless before what council does. So, you know, we have, I said this under Nutter, we have a, what happens to a strong mayor form of government when you have a weak mayor? And the answer is council asserts itself, which it's doing right now. Going forward, Rendell obviously was powerful. Street also had, had a powerful uh, personality and a, and a real good hand and knew how to play things. But then it's sort of, uh, Nutter's a very bright guy, but can he, he can't do what you're describing. And Kenny is completely checked out. Is there anybody on the horizon? Because we have an election uh, next year, 23, that, that is going to be able to uh, become the mayor and have an impact uh, without being able to deal with council. And well, be for, able to get their plans out. For 31, 32 years, I was paid and paid a good amount of money to follow politics. But I'm not paid anymore, so I don't pay much attention. I hear that I hear all the various and sundry people being mentioned, which is this kind of thing that happens this time. But I would say this: ask yourself this question: Who has the ability to raise three million dollars or get three million dollars? because I think that's what it takes to be elected mayor. And it's again, mostly because of media costs. And if you don't have that money or you don't have a so-called super PAC that's gonna give you that money, then it's gonna be very hard for you to get ahead. You're not gonna get ahead in the traditional way, the old fashioned way. I mean, but, and, and, and with the money doesn't guarantee success. Look at Senator Williams, he ran for mayor and he had these, gamblers basically who favored charter schools who gave him a couple of million bucks and they ran ads for him now this was independent spending and he just 
just didn't take off. Now, he was a terrible candidate. Just to um, clarify, we're talking about Tony Williams. Not Tony Williams, yeah, Tony, not Hardy's dead. Right. He, he couldn't run. But but he but he, he was actually a pretty good candidate. But um, Tony didn't have the oomph behind himself. He didn't have the oomph and never, he was, he was a prince. His, his father handed him that seat because you may recall, or you may not, because you don't have to. Hardy decided not to run, but he didn't tell anybody that until like two weeks before the filing deadline. And then suddenly the only person who had signatures was his son. And he walked in based upon that, with that gift from his father and has been there ever since because of that. Now he's begun to have, he's beginning to have real competition. He had that teacher running against him last time who did right. surprisingly well, lost, but did surprisingly well in my view. And look at Jenny Blackwell. I think she ran in one election too many. People yes. never, never want to step down. They never want to say it's not my time anymore. How many politicians do you know just sort of sit and say, well, I think I'm done. I'm going to retire. I know one. Who? My father. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, your father didn't have the kind of superego. Well, he did. But but I mean, he besides, it was a tough commute, you know? Jeez. He'd come home every night. He was a ward leader, wasn't he? He was, a he was the ward leader of the eighth ward, which, of course, was a, a very liberal ward. He would yeah. describe he described uh, trying to get people to come to a meeting and agree on anything was like herding cats. And yeah. he said to me, Peter, I'm done with this. I've been in the politics for 36 years. I'm done herding cats. I don't want to run for election. I don't want to go to Harrisburg. And that was it. So he stepped away. But you're you're right. Janie Blackwell, if, if she if she won, she'd be running for re-election again. And May again. Yeah. Yes. And May again. Yeah. Was your father head of the Judiciary Committee? Yes, he was the head. And uh, when they were in the majority, and he was the minority when uh, when Tony Sirico, Tony was Sirico. federal judge, uh, was the was the uh, was in the when the Republicans were in the majority. And we talked about it earlier uh, as an example. Those my father and and Sirica, the Republican and Democrat, they got along famously. They yeah. you know they had their places where they completely differed and they'd have their arguments, but at the, at the end they could have sit down and and cut a deal, so to speak, yeah. on stuff. And we talked about that, that that's just that whole realm of thinking doesn't exist in Harrisburg anymore. Well, I think I think the politics has changed, big surprise. And with the conservatives and the rural people being much in having much more power and also being ideologues. Now, they don't have the monopoly of that. We have a democratic socialist who are successful in politics who are in Harrisburg today and who are in city council. So they're ideologues as well, but you know, they just have more Republicans in Harrisburg right now. I don't know what the people who are socialists think they're gonna get done in Harrisburg. You can't get much done in Harrisburg if you're like a moderate Democrat. So can, uh, can that, the democratic socialists, so to speak, and we'll label it that, can they get anything done to the point where they could get themselves elected mayor, let alone get any kind of programs done? Can they, well, you'd said, well, you need $3 million and we'll just use that as a figure. Can, can, is there anybody out there from that, that uh, group, so to speak, that can, can raise $3 million? No. And they wouldn't want to. The people united will never be defeated. 
<laughs> I tell you, who needs so, money if you've got if you've got now and and also they have had success. Look at uh, oh, what's the name of the state senator from South Philly? You tell me. Uh, Nick Saval. Yeah, Nick Saval, a very sincere guy, and he beat. See, I don't get paid anymore to do this. You know who he? Larry Fernese. Yes, and the reason you can't remember is because he was a cipher. He didn't do anything. He looked good. He looked marvelous. But, <laughs> but he, he just didn't have the, the oomph for policy. For, I mean, look at the people we have had up there. Larry's a good example. I mean, I may not agree with what this other guy believes in, but Larry was a do-nothing, basically. And uh, no wonder he lost. Uh, and that district was changing because it was once all old Italians. And you know what happens to old people? They die. And young people take their place. And that area of South Philly, Pashyunk, and other areas like that are changing and have people in their 20s and 30s and 40s who have different political viewpoints. Than, and they certainly aren't organization people. And they're never going to be. Are they going to stay here? Or or when these young, when the young people get have the children and they look around at the schools are they going to stay because that's been a problem with the city and its population going back uh, forever but let's just say from the 80s that never changed in the 90s and it hasn't well, changed now. District, the, the school district to me is a little bit like the, the chinese communists they 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 hold they hold parades with a banner that says celebrating our 50th glorious year of reform you know, and there are people being brought in to reform the school district all the time. And Bill Heitzel, and I think highly of Bill Heitzel, is the example. The most significant thing we did to preserve and protect our middle class or our parents, you know, parents who, who want their children to achieve are charters. And charters have been a big blessing for stabilizing the population in the city. I had a friend who lived out in West Philly, this is probably in the 80s, who said, you know, I thought they must have passed a law in Philly that said you have to move to the suburbs when your kid gets to in kindergarten, because that's where people would go. That's where the schools were. Now, if you play the lottery and get them into a charter school, you can stay here. And, and the district has changed. The district used to be hostile to schools that attracted achieving kids you know our parents wanted them to be achievers but you've got nebinger and you've got mccall and you've got jackson where you have principals who say come on in come on in and those and and schools that used to be 97 percent poor are now more reflecting their neighborhoods in terms of income and race but also income mostly income so that's a good sign. There's just not enough of them. In your view, is that, that the public schools are, are sort of uh, morphing into, through the, through the charters, uh, into something that will keep young families in the city? Uh, I hope so. At, means, but I mean, if the teachers union, the, the, the PFT has their way, they'll choke them off. They don't want that. They don't want that competition. They don't want kids to go there. Look at the school district. Look at the big slide in uh, enrollment in just this past year. It was like 7,000 kids. That's because people are opting out to go somewhere else. If it was me, and it's not because I'm considered 
a radical troglodyte for this. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, if you if you favor charters, in a lot of cases, you are evil incarnate because you don't support public education. But if I if it were me, I'd have more charters. Now they have to be good. They'd have to actually teach kids stuff. But you have a class of aspiring parents in the city, and they're not white people. They're poor people. They're black people. They're Asian people, and they want. They want a good education for their kids so that they can live a good life. And back in the day, in the 80s, when I was doing some work on education, I met a mother who lived two blocks from Temple who would put her child, her daughter, on a bus every morning at 6.30 so she could ride for an hour and a half to a school in the Northeast. Why? Because she felt that her daughter would get a better education there than she would at the neighborhood school. They, she cared about her child. And we tend to see schools as a political thing with various, you know, it is, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but it really is about the future of the city. And it's not gonna be told by pouring another 2 billion into it. I think we've talked about everything but Persian art in the 13th century. Do you have oh, any questions? The Museum of Art's got a nice little room there. It's about a, a <laughs> five by ten room full of all that good stuff. Well, I, I think that you. Much uh, I think I've dealt with almost everything. I, I, I think you have, but the one, the 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 one question I it, we kind of talked to, it, but we didn't get. Who is it that can get three million dollars and and become the mayor? Well, that's two questions. Okay. Who can get three I million? Understand what you're saying. Mayor. Alan Donald can get $3 million from his own bank account. Whether he can become mayor is a different matter. Super funds uh, can come along, although one of the biggest is now out of commission, and that was Local 98, which is the electrician's union. Right, that's Doherty. Right, was Doherty. And they're not inclined to do that. Uh, the, there could be business people who get together and decide to invest, like the people who are true believers in charters. The, the 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 hedge fund guys from out in the suburbs, the billionaire. That's what we're Yes, Jeffrey Yes. Yes, Jeffrey Yes, yes. Everybody's got partners who also have given money. I mean, he's just a true believer. He believes in charter schools. But of course he's portrayed as evil incarnate incarnate because and George Soros, who's on the other side of the equation, you know, he's the reason why we have Larry Krasner because he put a lot Don't of money. Don't get me started, Tom. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, I'm fine. I mean, I'm, I'm glad that Larry has continued his program of decriminalizing crime. So, uh, but he got, he got the Soros money and that made yes. a difference for him. Yes, made a big difference. And Soros might, might engage a socialist progressive candidate for mayor if they, you have to look a little bit like you're gonna win before you get that money though. So they have to establish themselves as candidates. Who do you think is going to be the next mayor? Well, that's why I have no idea. I I can see. Why not? A, I mean, your father would. Well, have. I mean, I, I can see a but scenario least, where where the 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 let's just say the the left of the Democratic Party uh, they all decide that they should be mayor, and yes. somebody who's a little bit more moderate could sneak in and they have money. So I don't think that Dom is, is an unreasonable thought if he wants to be mayor. Uh, who the hell would want to be mayor of this city? Is oh, I think he wants to be mayor. And they well, mentioned I, 
Brown, too, who's the owner of Shop. Right. And but I, does he want to get involved with this? Would you? No. I mean, you know, you have a moments of craziness, but you can only lay down and relax. Try to right. Get, yeah. It's, uh, you know, who, who will, I mean, first of all, there won't be, I don't think there'll be any new player who will come out of nowhere. Uh, Jeff Brown would be close to that because not nobody knows who he is. But they know ShopRite. Yeah, they know ShopRite. That's right. And um, who's who do you think is the strongest person in council? Well, I would say Daryl Clark, but I don't think he has any interest in because he He's has not run for re-election council, I don't think, let alone mayor. Really? He's had lots of opportunity to run for mayor, but he hasn't done it. I don't think he wants to be. Would you? No. I, yeah. I think he I think he I think he loves exactly where he is. Yeah. He he holds the purse strings and there's nobody who is sitting as the mayor of Kenny that's willing to do anything unless there's a deal that's going to make Clark happy. I think Daryl's probably going to retire. Wow. It is. Well, then it's my feeling. Then there'll be a scuffle, so to speak. For council president? Yes. It, well, we could have, I mean, I think Helen Gim is someone who sh you should watch because she's dangerous, but, uh, but <laughs> well, the other, the other person has ambition and the requisite shamelessness of a citywide the, candidate. The other person, and we haven't talked about it, although uh, her, uh, but I have uh, Kiona, she's as, as somebody once said about my former boss, one tough cookie, because she, you know, she's a, it, she's taken on the Tartaglione dynasty down in Hunting Park and, and parts of Kensington. And you got to be a real tough person to put up with that and make some progress. So if she wanted to run, I don't know if she could get the money, but she'd be tough. And who is that? Who I missed the name. Maria Kionis. Oh, Indian. yeah. Right. Very smart. Very good. And she is enmeshed in the 15th century politics of the Latino wards. And I think that's a problem. If people were sensible, like Latinos who were sensible, they would back her because that would be the path to power. But instead what they have, this is a classic thing that happens, it's not just Latinos. Uh, they wanna hold on to the power they have and they don't wanna spread it. They don't wanna give it to other people. And so I think that Latino ward leaders uh, have a stake in keeping voter turnout low and and work it and uh, and hate and hate uh, uh, Sanchez. So Quinona Sanchez, but um, but she's a smart person. She'd be good. But you, you don't have to look at. You can't ask who's the best. No, you can ask who's the most likely. And I don't know whether she has access to that kind of money. I, I don't either. And we don't have always a business class. So mega dollars and you can't do it anyway because we have a campaign finance law we are here um and I've exhausted, I've exhausted this I've, and i apologize i could go back into the 19th century that, that that's all right uh oh. joe well, actually, humphrey mori is, is our our guiding light yeah and i'm sure you know humphrey mori as the first philadelphia mayor from i believe it was like 17 1750s appointed by William Penn himself. No, that was that was before me. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. A little bit before me. Yeah. yeah. But 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 he's our North Star. He's yeah. <laughs> ah. Yeah. He guides us along. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Tom, it was a blast. I wish you luck. It was somewhat esoteric. That's and all right. Rhymes with Ferric. But uh, you've got a you've got a 
the kind of audience that cares about this shit. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a good audience. They follow this stuff, they eat this stuff. We'd all be in a bar somewhere talking about this stuff that's not for COVID. Okay. But. And by now I'd be slurring my speech. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you. Right, thank, you thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Take care now.